to Seeing Color, a podcast that talks with cultural workers and artists of color in order to expand the area of what is a predominantly white space in the arts. I'm your host, Ziwon Chung. Hey everyone, I hope everyone's doing well. My life has been a bit hectic for the past few weeks. I was living in Vermont, finishing up some time and work at a residency when this whole coronavirus became a major issue. For those not keeping up with the news in Asia, China has had an outbreak with this flu-like virus for the past month. And as I was mentally preparing to leave the U.S., I got the news that the entire city of Wuhan was quarantined, which is crazy. And flights were being canceled left and right. Different countries were not allowing flights to come from China. And my school, which was originally supposed to start on February 5th, first got delayed a week and then two weeks. And now the first week of classes will be held online. My boss also told me to stay away as long as possible. So I had rerouted my flight from Zhuhai to Thailand to be on standby as I didn't think the situation would continue to get worse. But it might be that the entire semester will be taught online. I'm still waiting to hear the official go-ahead from my school. I don't know what an online art class looks like and I'm currently rewriting my syllabus to try to make it work. But I'm still trying to figure out where to go from Thailand at this point and may go back to the U.S. for the semester since... That is as far from the virus geographically as possible. And everyone keeps telling me to leave the side of the ocean. So I'll keep you updated as the weeks go on. As for today, I have an interview with Diana Lee, a writer, translator, and the current director of Dylan and Lee Gallery. I've known Diana since our time in undergrad, although we didn't fully connect until after as we were both thinking about applying to grad school. Diana ended up pursuing an art criticism and writing master's at SVA before beginning work at her current gallery, where after many years, Diana became the director of the space. I had originally spoken with Diana right after the birth of her son, but the audio got all messed up, so this is actually the second time speaking with Diana for the podcast. It was in our first interview that I spoke with Diana more about her time at the gallery and working her way up to her current position, but I didn't get to that this time through as the interviews and the questions blended together. Perhaps I can delve back into that history in another interview for the future, but for this episode, Diana and I chat about a language's relationship with art, what art criticism tries to do, and what is it like to run a mid-tier gallery. I hope you enjoy this. Right now, I'm talking to Diana Lee, and I met Diana when we were both in undergrad, and since then, our our paths have largely gone in very different directions, or similar in some ways, too. We're both still in the art world. Um, right now, Diana is a director at Dylan and Lee Gallery, mm-hmm. and so, yeah, thanks for uh, agreeing to chat with me. My pleasure. So, yeah, so I guess we'll just start off with what have you been up to today? (laughs) Uh, Well, actually, that's a good question because you could have asked me some other day when I did absolutely just mother stuff only. But today was interesting. I got some, I had some clients that I was talking to over the phone. So that's kind of what I've been doing lately, sort of working more as a private advisor to Mm -hmm. collectors rather Mm -hmm. because we're not actively having exhibitions because I'm currently home. Right. Though that's not the only reason. One of the other reasons is that we don't have a permanent space and we're not sure that we even ever will again. We had a pop-up. Yeah. We had a pop-up exhibition just in October through November and we had another one similar to this last year around the same time. And we enjoy doing these pop-ups because you have these shows and it's kind of like what you were saying about your podcast. You don't know who's listening. Same thing with an exhibition. <laughs> yeah. Most, if you ask any gallerist, you'll tell, they'll tell you, you know, mostly they're just sitting there. I mean, maybe not the directors, obviously, but the attendants or the assistants are probably witnessing a lot of dead you know there's not a lot of walking traffic people are satisfied looking at images you know 
of the artworks. And I, you know, I can agree with that to some degree. So, and it's mm. a busy world out there, I guess. So, yeah. um, in terms of having shows and the necessity, f- I mean, that's a whole other philosophical question, of course, the necessity to have a show, but in just logistically speaking, we found that there's a lot of dead months in New York City for the clients that we're trying to target because, you know, I'm running a mid-tier gallery. It's not it's not a nonprofit gallery. It's not like a museum-esque kind of gallery where we're staging conceptually, solely conceptually based or led shows. Uh-huh. So, you know, our goal really is to place these works in collections. So we are when we're curating these. So that's why I don't use the word curator for myself because I just feel like curators are doing something else. Even though I curate things, I'm yeah. not a curator mm-hmm. because I'm doing it with a, a commercial end. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, so I don't, yeah, so I'm not, I'm not a curator, but I do put on these shows and it is really to speak to certain types of people, our clients, you know, I always try to get in the middle somewhere because I don't want to completely just do things for someone else, but it's, yeah, I think you have to strike a balance. Yeah. So that's just, yeah. I don't know. I just kind of went with your question into a weird place. No, yeah. Well, actually, it led to <laughs> like five other questions in my head. But mm-hmm, I guess mm-hmm. so. I'll, I'll go back to that. But I guess um, I let's start off with how did you get into art, and how did you sort of make the switch over to the gallery scene? Sure. Um, how I got into it. It's funny because I don't know if we're supposed to share with our listeners that this is like a redo of the conversation. I, I, <laughs> but, I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah. So if anyone hey, is had curious, this, yeah. we had this conversation before <laughs> and I kind of remember things I said before, but then I'm doing this thing in my head of like editing what yeah. I said before. And yeah, and it's nice having something I said before so that I can be like, oh, this was what was missing. Yeah. yeah. And what what did I talk for? too long about that wasn't actually that interesting <laughs> at the end no of the worries. day. But no anyway, worries. um yeah, how I got into it. I now that I think about it, I think what happened is that as an immigrant, you know, you go into school and there's all these subjects, but you might not be good at it because you don't speak English very well. You know what I mean? So yeah. I think for me, what happened was that art was one of those, it's, it's a wordless thing. So, I mean, there's text in art, but essentially it's not. So I think it was an outlet for me. So I always just enjoyed it. I felt like it was somewhere I could be myself, even just like in elementary school. And I think because, yeah, so then I, I felt like there was no such thing as excelling or not excelling in it at least for in my experience. I think that's still uh, true we, as an adult. Kind of, yeah, right? So um, also I grew up in Queens, so we didn't have funding for an art class. Mm-hmm. So the only way you can do art was through this club that you had to like sign up with your parents and like stay after school once a week. And my mom was nice enough or didn't care enough to let me do it. So you didn't get graded for it. It was a club. So that mm-hmm. was, I think... It, it just was like a sacred place for me, art, yeah. that like it was away from like the standards and like grades and feeling like you're not good enough. All of that just kind of was silenced in art. So I think that was definitely and also just the passion of the fact that the teacher who was running this club was running it because he just felt like we needed something like this. And your children are very keen, so they can feel when a teacher is being like authentic versus just doing their job too. So they might not know why, but I think that's why this teacher was really magnetic. And even kids who didn't draw or didn't like art would try to sign up for the art club because the teacher was just so cool. And yeah. then people wanted to be with him and like be around his aura about things. And he would tell great stories. And so that's kind of how I got into it. And I never left it because it just made such a I think it was like because that was like third grade or something and I immigrated here when I was in second grade but we didn't 
but it was like the end of the school year. So really it made a huge impression on me. So for me, like school and doing art as like a safe space just went hand in hand, like forever. Mm -hmm. So even when I went to high school and it was very rigorous and I always try to do well in school, of course, but I always knew that I can always have this thing that I can do, maybe not well, but just like to just be myself or something or just call it my own. I think the other thing is that as immigrant people, your parents, I don't know about yours, but you know, they're, they don't know much about art or they don't have time to really discuss that with you. I mean, turns out my dad was really interested in art history and he didn't tell me until like later on. Oh, my, um, my, but, my dad also did that too. He, he did yeah. go to an art history course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I found with my dad, like when I went to Korea as a college student and I, and my uncle was keeping all his stuff for him, he was like, Oh, these stupid books I'm keeping for your dad. Like, do you want them? And they were all art history books. Really? And I was like, Oh my God, dad. <laughs> So I think, you know, it's not about they don't know. So I don't want to like put them down because just being an immigrant doesn't mean you're less sophisticated, obviously. But I think we feel that way, of course, because they don't have time to have sophisticated conversations with you, which is why there's all those like memes about Asian parents only caring about like stupid, silly things or whatever. Also, we forget that like art is such a privileged thing to do. Exactly. You you have to like take away time to basically talk about exactly. something that that doesn't have any clear meaning kind of like you said the same thing that exactly. drew you in as a kid it's like exactly. as an adult we don't know what it is what's good or bad and then so yeah, yeah exactly and you know you don't you don't have the energy or the space in your brain to think about it even if you would like to because you're just working too much or something you know yeah. so mm-hmm. But actually, that was another layer of why I just never left whatever, wherever I was in terms of art, because it was a place my parents couldn't tap into. Or that's Mm -hmm. at least that's what I thought, you know, now that I know they could have. But back then, I thought it was like, really, truly my thing. You know what I mean? Oh, I see. Um, Like a place your parents couldn't enter. Yeah. And because Mm -hmm. they don't want to touch it because they don't want me to. They probably didn't want me to study it. (laughs) And I I wasn't really thinking I was going to do it forever. I just always thought it was going to be in my life somehow. Yeah. But Were they worried when you... I don't think they were worried, but because I went to Cornell, so I guess they were kind of like, oh, okay, like... She has it sort of figured out. (laughs) I guess she'll take some other classes or something. I don't know. Yeah, my, Um, my parents thought that too. Yeah. And I thought that too, honestly, I didn't really think like going in how much I was going into. Yeah. So, but yeah, I think that's why I just never, it always was with me because it just was so special in that way. You know, when you feel like something is really your secret Mm -hmm. and even my siblings, like they weren't into it either. So it really was my thing. And, you know, siblings, you have sibling rivalry and you feel like, you're sharing clothes all the time, you know, like I grew up with sisters and we're always sharing clothes and you don't have your own things. So I think having this interest that no one else seemed to have, I really felt like I needed to keep it. Yeah. So what was that like moving to the States in second grade? Oh, it was terrifying. (laughs) It was traumatic. Yeah. Defines who I am today. (laughs) Yeah. Cause Yeah. What was what would you think something that like really changed you in a way that you probably it wouldn't have because I can't because like I even though I am Chinese American like I grew up here mm-hmm. so for me I don't mm-hmm. have a, the experience of like moving here not speaking the language right right you know I think so even when I was growing up in Korea I wasn't into art at that point because the art thing happened kind of like I explained of necessity. Right. Mm -hmm. But even in Korea, I wasn't like an academic type of student at all, but I was creative. Like I loved writing when I was in Korea, I wrote little poems Mm -hmm. and I would write little essays. And, and that's, I only went to school for two years in Korea and I was in elementary school, but I remember teachers being like, Oh, this is a good essay or whatever, you know? And my dad would be like, Oh, you wrote this poem. So I had it in me to try to do something creative. So I, 
think always language was very important to me in that way. So then, but, but when I came to the States, what I didn't realize because I was so young was the whole concept of learning how to speak a language. Like that was just, I didn't understand it. Like I didn't, I mean, I knew, like I watched movies with subtitles when I was in Korea growing up, but I, I was so naive and young. I don't know how other kids are, but I thought that language and place is married to each other. Uh-huh. Um, so when you go somewhere and you decide you're going to live there, not visit, <laughs> you have to go live there. So yeah. I, I had these like notions, right? So that if I go somewhere, then the next day I wake up and I speak that language. Uh-huh. I thought that's how it worked. <laughs> and I never thought about it deeply. It was just like, you know, when you have these assumptions, but you don't like articulate it, but then you realize you actually had an assumption. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. You judge someone, but you don't think to yourself you actually judge them. And then later on, if they disappoint you or something, you're like, oh, I guess I was expecting this, you know, yeah, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. So uh, when I came to America and then the next day I woke up and, and I didn't, didn't understand the anything. language, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, I had this, ter- I still remember that moment I was in bed and we stayed with my dad's friends because we were getting all our housing stuff settled. So we were crashing at his friends and they let us use the master bedroom. And I was on their bed, like woke up looking at the ceiling being like, oh, shoot. So I have to figure this out. And it dawned on me, like I have to learn this. As a second that grader, was, wow. That, that's like yeah, a huge was, existential crisis that I don't think I've had as a second you don't grader. Remember, no, I don't. You don't remember when you started speaking when you're a second grader and let's like for you I don't, I don't, was your first language english sort of i grew up or learning did you learn Can- simultaneous i grew up Cant- learning cantonese up until i went to school and then once i went to school mm. i started speaking english and my parents didn't bother like correcting me at home so they, yeah and they right. spoke english so they just switched over which i wish they didn't I but see. it's it sort of helped me it's helped me more than i thought because now that mm. i'm in china Comes it's coming, back, I'm sure. It, it came. It, it's coming back a lot faster than I thought. Wow. And yeah, it's interesting how our brain works. Yeah, and then especially when I'm like, I'm I'm taking Chinese classes right now, and then I kind of have this sort of out of body experience because when I was in Germany, I was also trying to learn German, and mm. I was just the words were not sticking, the sentences were not mm. sticking, and then mm-hmm. I see other Europeans who've like taken lots of different languages related to German and mm. they're just like doing it wrong, but they're just really comfortable and they're picking up words. And now that I'm in China, right. I see the reverse where like I'm seeing all the mostly, you know, like white people or people whose languages are very away from Chinese and I'm in the class right. and I can hear the tone differences and I'm much right. more comfortable just like saying a sentence wrong and it's coming right. The words are sticking yeah. in a way that they didn't stick in German, where I'm just like, That's yeah, the so German cool. language did not enter my brain. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I went to this reading of this adopted Korean woman, Korean American, and she was talking about her experience of learning English, I mean, Korean, to kind mm-hmm. of like get back to her roots or heal herself in some way. And she was saying that. That it was like the most emotional thing. She would cry every day during the lessons because even though she didn't speak Korean, it was like some. It's like what you're saying: the outer body experience thing happens where she feels like she's heard it before, something, and she just couldn't stop crying during Mm. the classes. And I was like, oh my god, yeah. So I think you know, I when I was figured out that I had to learn a language and like you don't remember ever having learned how to speak, at least maybe in your case, you grew up knowing that there is a concept called bilingual and there's this other language that your parents are trying to teach you. So your brain was probably more sophisticated in that regard than mine. I just grew up learning how to speak Korean, which was the same thing as breathing and everyone else spoke Korean and Korean is a Korea back in the 90s was very homogenous so 
unless you're in the zone where the military bases are, you never saw foreigners. You only yeah. see Korean people. It's almost like you fall off the edge of the earth. If you know, yeah. how can you go anywhere else? Very regionalistic, kind of like provincial attitude in Korea back in the day. So, yeah, I think that contributed to my trauma of like, well, how am I supposed to grasp this other thing? So that's the most memorable thing from um, immigrating. Yeah. I mean, I think that story is really interesting because both the fact that you did poetry and then also that linked with how you fell into art because there was a wordlessness and a wordlessness to it. But I think that, mm -hmm. that is really interesting because I know when you, when you did your final year in college, you like went back to language, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Which is like, which I think most, most artists that I meet would, they like run away from writing or language. Right. Right. And, right, right. Uh, and how you sort of, the reason you got into it wasn't because of language, but then you came back to it because, you know, I guess as a, like you said, when you were a kid, you were, you were writing and how language has always been an important part of you. Right. I think that's why like interdisciplinary art is really fascinating to me. Like, do you know that artist Samson Young? Yeah. Yeah. He's from, I think he's from yeah, Hong Kong, so, right? And he does a lot of I like music so, yeah. and now videos. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I don't know much about his work and I went to one of his little special project room type of exhibition. So it wasn't even quite like a full exhibition, but they had a thing at the Guggenheim because they have that Chinese curator. Oh I, yeah. I saw that. I, I saw that. I saw that show. That was like two years ago. Or yeah. Something. Oh, you yeah. did. Did yeah, you yeah. see the Samson Young part? Yeah. Was like, I, it, I, I there was remember. like a dragon. I think there's like a dragon on loop there's like, walking around and there's some sounds. They're like playing, playing music. Yeah. 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 There's mm -hmm. drama. And mm -hmm. and I remember just feeling so impressed by like his work. I don't even know anything about him or whatever, but it just it didn't feel to me like he was dabbling in all these random things. It just felt like the intensity was so high yeah. that when you're exploring something like a text or something like a sound, it all kind of goes together. Mm -hmm. And I think when you do it to a certain intensity things happen that way. Like, mm -hmm. you know, like when you look at a painting and you can almost hear some, some things with some paintings, like, you know, you have these like different senses, right? So yeah, a sort of synesthesia. Yeah. And I don't have synesthesia, I don't think, but I don't, yeah. It, I mean, I don't think, I don't yeah, think I most people like, do. <laughs> yeah. I just feel like the interdisciplinary works really speak to me because that's how I feel like happened in terms of me writing in Korea, then going into art, but then it leading me back to something because yeah. it's, it's all like the same, um, not to say these genre divides aren't important because they totally are. And we should respect when someone is strictly wants to identify as a writer, an artist or a musician, of course. But I do think that they are married to each other in some way. So if you are the type of person that is interested in multiple things, it does tend to like weave in and out through your life. Yeah. So I think that's what's, you know, happened to me in terms of art and writing and other things. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so, yeah, I mean, I think cause as I understand it, you ended up getting, um, going into writing. You did a program, I think at a master's at, um, where was it? Was it NYU? SVA. SVA, yeah. You went to SVA mm -hmm. for writing masters. Um, mm -hmm. And then how did you decide upon that? So right now the program is called Art Writing. It's still run by David Levi Strauss, who's a poet turned art critic. And But the time that I applied to the program, it was called Art Criticism and Writing. And actually, I really love that title yeah. so much that's kind of why I applied to it so you wouldn't I just apply felt, now <laughs> I I'm like oh man why did he change that thing I'm sure there's a huge reason to it but um yeah I think coming from an art background and getting into writing from there it wasn't like I was 
in the English department and I knew the history of, I didn't, I never read like Jane Austen or, you know, like, yeah. I don't know, like whoever you're supposed to read. Well, and also, also our, our program didn't really stress writing. I don't think I wrote right. anything exactly. about art or knew how to write exactly. about art. Yeah. All. They didn't require us to write papers or describe anything or just artist <laughs> statements, but it was, yeah. Anyway, so, <laughs> yeah. but I did a lot of independent writing and reading, but it was very much guided by not, I didn't have a syllabus, but guided by the things that I was looking at. So mm. I needed the next bridge of my graduate school to have like an art angle because I just felt like I couldn't, not, not intimidated, like I can't be a writer, but I just didn't want to lose what I've gained from being in a BFA program. Yeah. And I did, and kind of like what I mentioned about the whole Samson Young experience of like interdisciplinary artists and stuff like that. I just felt like there's something to it of art and writing going hand in hand. I know I remember watching this stand-up comedy and some dude was like the most useless job is like an art historian or art critic Mm -hmm. or something. (laughs) Like you're not even making the art and you're not like, you're not even a writer and you're writing about the art and it's art. You're not even like reviewing a movie. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And a lot of people poo poo at like, you know, critics and stuff like that, like Ratatouille. (laughs) Yeah. Like, you know, critics have a bad rep or whatever, but I always, felt like there was something to writing about um, something that you see that exists, you know, Mm -hmm. that's Mm -hmm. so valuable because, and I think that's what I wanted to preserve in my writing. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's what art criticism does because it teaches you how, well, it depends on the pedagogy, I guess, of the school. Of course, there are more like theoretical practices to art criticism where you talk about like, well, something through the lens of Derrida or something like that. But Mm -hmm. at least even so, you're still talking about something that exists, right? And it's Mm -hmm. visual. But at least with David Levi, he was very much about like focusing also on the formal aspect of what you're seeing and letting that really be the guide. Because if you don't see it in the art, then it's not there. So don't use it to like do your own political thing or whatever. Or maybe he didn't believe that. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it was like it seems like a very liter- someone, literal literal Yeah, way not of- quite so literal, but I think he cuz he's very political, but he he definitely did teach us how to look at things and look at things. Um mm. so whether you do end up taking it in a political way, I think the training in the grad school has to be very focused first on really learning how to look at something. And it's not to say like you need to describe like how the plaster is forming on the, over the whatever, you know, not like that, but in terms of what you see. Right. So I think, you know, memory is a big part of what I'm interested in. So I think art criticism and the writing just like makes sense for me because I never wanted to just write about writing. I always wanted to write about something. So I think that's why I chose the program and it was great. Like, I, I learned a lot. We wrote a lot. We saw a lot. And it was in the heart of New York. So we got to see a lot of things. The teachers were all practitioners. So, yeah. you know, and you're that right was next really to great. Chelsea. Yeah, exactly. But they pushed us to go see things that were outside of Chelsea, which was great. And sometimes it just felt like we were just in a, you know, in a creative writing program, too, yeah. because it wasn't. It was also just about getting better in your craft of writing. So, Mm -hmm. yes, we had strict classes where we're reading theory and um, writing reviews and things like that. But we had teachers who were more into like long form who would write like biographies about artists and they would write it for their entire life, you know. So they had a different way or of viewing time and writing, I guess. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of like the interdisciplinary form of learning and doing that you were talking about. Mm-hmm. And so from there, how did you end up getting into the gallery scene? From there, literally, I just wanted to have a job. <laughs> My plan was, or I thought I had a plan, was just to have something that pays the bills, but I I wanted to keep writing 
you know, pitch to magazines or what have you. So, but I was never the kind of person that would close doors before you even tried something, which is kind of my flaw and my like strength. You, you're always saying yes to everything you mean? Not, not yes, but I'm always saying maybe. It could be. <laughs> like I give, I give a benefit of doubt to things. So like, yeah. You know, some people are like, oh, I hate small talk. Like, it's stupid. But I don't, I'm not one of those. I'm like, well, small talk is, yeah, awkward. But sometimes really good things could happen from it. So I'm always like. You're positive. A little. You're, you're, yeah, you're like, you're always seeing the positive I'm, side of things. Yeah, because I just, I think having gone through like various things in my life, I just feel like you just can't be so self-assured. Not self-confident like that's another thing but like self-assured that you know what's mm. best you know what I mean mm. so I think mm -hmm. in some way I think that makes me seem like kind of a wavery person because people who put their foot down and say like this is what I want and just yeah. go straight shooting for it like can make really intense things and make their life into the in an to an intense drama or whatever but for me I've kind of it's uh, I am very like these are my ideas and my opinions. So of course, when something strikes me as important, like art, it never leaves me, but yeah. it happens in a more organic way. And in terms of like how it's going to express itself, like whether I'm going to be an artist or a writer or something or whatever, that kind of just flows based on what I feel inspired by the next moment. So I'm just mm -hmm. kind of like moving forward. Yeah. So the job, I really just needed a job. And, but I had I do have standards, of course. So I decided to myself when I was applying for jobs that I want to work for a small business. I don't want to work for a big gallery. I just felt like I felt like I had the sense that I wasn't this wasn't a long term thing. Mm. Um, so I thought to myself, well, if it's only going to be like three to five years or whatever, because I, I only don't want to make plans for the rest of my life anyway. It's not that yeah. I had a deadline, but yeah. So if I was only going to do it for that amount of time, like how am I going to ma maximize the experience? And in my head, it was working for a smaller gallery yeah. because then you can have your feet in everything and then kind of figure out what, what I like from there. Not that mm -hmm. I wanted a career in gallery, but just in case I did, I guess maybe, yeah. you know, yeah. to get a different perspective, but also, to continue being able to write. So be, you know, having the flexibility to do that, I think in a bigger gallery with bigger responsibilities or restrictions or whatever, because yeah. then you can't review their shows, you know. I didn't quite Things know like anything about galleries when actually I think I still don't know a lot about galleries. I mean, I, <laughs> galleries still confound me too. It's very confusing. <laughs> Yeah, so I don't yeah. even I only know in terms of it, what seems to be this abstract notion of money and privilege right. from the bigger the smaller right. ones, but ultimately right. I actually don't know the difference. I think. Right. Yeah, I mean, back then I used to think the good galleries are the galleries that were doing very academic work. Mm -hmm. But then now I have a more broader understanding of it. So, I'm not and what I mean by academic work is work that where the artists are also teachers, maybe that also show in museums, you know, mm. they're very like serious seeming or something yeah. like that. <laughs> yeah. They're not, not just, the, they're not just like pretty paintings. They're not showing in art fairs, you know, they're, yeah. they're maybe showing in festivals like Documenta or something, but they're not showing at Basel, for example, like it's too, <laughs> that's too commercial for them, stuff like that. So I, I think my I did understand how galleries worked, but I didn't quite, my value system was so shaped by academia. So I think yeah. I always was like, well, these are the good galleries because they get critical, Acclaim. rigorous. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which still is very valuable to me. And I do admit when I see galleries like that, Marie Guy was one of those gallerists. I don't even know how to say the name Marie Guy or something. Yeah. I don't, yeah, I don't um, know either. But they closed or they're temporarily closed. They're one of the galleries that I was like, Ooh, this is like a rigorous gallery. So that's an example of one of them. And you know, it's, it's, it's in that like vanity of being a, being kind of, uh, what do you call acclaim. it? Yeah. There's a vanity to that too. Right. And it's yeah. like farcical, but I think when you're in academia, that's the capital that you want. You don't want 
real capital. You want like that kind of elusive cultural capital thing, right? So I think when I was, you know, straight out of grad school, that's kind of what I thought was super cool. Yeah. I didn't aim for it per se because I didn't apply to any of those really. But um, (laughs) the gallery that I started working for was because a lot of them don't ever hire. So that's Uh. the that's the real that's like all the things that opened up to me after I got into the world because even if you're working for a super commercial gallery or a gallery like mine which is kind of in the middle um, of everything in terms of pricing in terms of where we are reputation wise or where we are in terms of criticality and then there's like really really commercial galleries you know like Gagosian or whatever Mm -hmm. so even, you know, so there are all these ranges, but the art world is quite small. So once you're in one of them, you kind of know about a lot of them. So mm-hmm. now, after working in galleries, like I have to say, my view of all of that has changed in a great way. Not not like flip-flop or anything like that, but I'm. it was like a sobering experience to understand, like, you know, there's a lot of, like I said, vanity to that kind of posturing or something of like being a super chic academic person that could quote such and such people. Mm -hmm. And I just got so like bored by that. So, I mean, there are moments where I'm just like, Oh, that's cool. Like maybe I (laughs) wish I could be like that, but I don't, I don't know. It's like, I, I haven't really made up my mind if like I feel that way out of failure of not being able to be like that. Or because I really feel that it's really just silly business, you know, like BS. You know? Have, have it's you actually? Have know. you actually seen gallerists pose, like pose for academia? Because I've seen. Because the more I hang out with galleries and like learn about it, the more I feel like they care less and less about academia. Oh yeah, no, they they care less and less. But what I mean is what I, when I was, when I was coming out of academia, academia wants to feel like they have some say in it. So they'll Mm. say like, Oh, well, these are the galleries or this museum is the one that is. Yeah. I see. Like they'll, they're doing rigorous things. They, on the other hand, those people that they're judging don't give a shit. Yeah. 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 That's what, that's what, that's what, that's what I was mentioning. Yeah. 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 But it doesn't mean that they're, unaware of the value that's there Mm -hmm. you know what I mean yeah and and to some degree like they do care because they are looking in terms of like MFAs like they are going to yeah certain schools for looking at talent maybe not consistently in the way that people are imagining it to be but of course they're going to put some weight to that so they do care but maybe not care care <laughs> they care yeah they, they um, care that when the person buying looks they're like oh this person went to columbia this person went to yale this person went to right. more than right. like what that actually means other than like you said the that kind of right. posturing but that but once you once i start talking to them i'm like oh they actually don't care you know right 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 yeah because there's so many other narratives of like people not having those things and still being really interesting and successful. So it would only backfire if they did put that much weight on it because like, like it literally would backfire. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Cause there are artists that just came out of nowhere and that you have to be like, okay, well this is important. Why? (laughs) Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah, I think those, I guess those galleries though probably would be the, interesting galleries that because because uh, also the other thing i've noticed is that galleries tend to be have this sort of um, herd mentality and they mm-hmm. they would rather play it safe than more often than not um because, yeah, because they end, have to make money bu- it is, yeah it's a business yeah. right and yeah. galleries are expensive to maintain most of the time yeah and yeah what i mean by like the vanity of things is that even galleries that seem like they're doing really radical like crazy things like yeah, yeah. You know, you look at, <laughs> you look at, well, but it's kind of insider trading ish too, because the people who was in the Whitney Biennial, I mean, a lot of them had, had representation from huge blue chip galleries yeah. that could fund them to be in the shows in the first place. So I know yeah, the whole yeah. Whitney Biennial thing had a issue because of that board member being part of making landmines and that, and then all these artists left or, but the, other thing that is really important beyond that flashy 
you know, news break kind of thing is that most of those artists are represented by big yeah. galleries. Yeah. So, you know, there might be like, let's say you're good enough to be, I mean, I can't say good enough because that's not anything, but let's yeah. say you were on the running for being, because I know artists that had studio visits from from curators to be in the running for the Whitney Biennial, but they weren't represented by a gallery. Yeah. And th that's when those things come into play. They might not pay. I don't know how the money thing works, I, but I don't know either. I still don't, the whole money thing in the, the art museum, world. But you yeah. know, these gallerists are also on the board of museums and stuff like that too. So, you know, it's like, you can't really not see the correlation there. Yeah. You know, I can't say exactly how it's correlated, but it's still correlated. Yeah. So I think this one critic who he published, uh, John Yao. Yeah. I was I just, think I was just thinking yeah, that. Yeah. He published that thing in the hyperallergic about yeah. like mm -hmm. the data of like where all these artists in the Whitney came from. Mm -hmm. in terms of where they went to MFA and if they're living in cities. And yeah, like these make a huge difference because, you know, again, like let's say your studio is right there where it is and you're in the running for Whitney. First of all, the curators would have to try to come out there to see your pieces in person, which is a big expense that would they even pay that even, yeah, yeah you know yeah would they care and then you have to ship the works that's a huge expense so a lot of these artists are have studios in new york or have some sort of arrangement or some yeah. sort of connection to someone who can help them do stuff like that because these are all very complicated things so yeah no i mean yeah i mean just kind of piggybacking off that like i was i know an artist who was given a, a commission to do a quite a cool show moving a moving installation and you know he didn't quite know how to uh what the budget was really and he kind of went way mm -hmm. over budget and then mm -hmm. but because he was represented by the gallery the gallery just stepped in and was like oh we'll just cover all the costs yeah you know and just sort of like and then he, he was just saying like yeah the money is this idea of money and the notion of money once you're associated with certain galleries kind of yeah is sort it becomes an abstract notion because he's like the piece exactly. wouldn't have happened without them but it yeah. happened and you kind of forget like and, how easy you know it was. and it's it's hard because it's not even like i don't know with this artist if he has it in the contract that the gallery would step in to do that and a lot of times artists don't even have contracts with the gallery it's like word of mouth like you are represented okay done you're on the website and that's how it's done sometimes artists don't make contracts because yeah, they feel yeah. like it's you know whatever but they feel like they don't need it, whatever, they're guaranteed, blah, blah, blah. But um, <laughs> my baby was <laughs> coming to crawl over. Anyway, yeah. um, but um, so then a lot of times artists feel like, oh, who cares about galleries? They don't do anything, which is true sometimes because if the occasion doesn't present itself where the gallery could step in and help, they sometimes don't do anything for you and would, you know, actually yeah. – use your stuff for their gain. So like, let's say you had a show and you got a review for it because you have a relationship with the magazine on your own by networking that you hustled for, you yeah. know, the gallery still gets to put that review on their website and be like, Oh, we were, we get frequently reviewed by the New York times or whatever, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. So yeah. a lot of, I feel like that's more of the story in terms of, you know, most galleries, unfortunately, but when it comes to like the big money players like Gagosian or like Pace or whatever, I do think that, yeah, yeah, it becomes an abstract notion. They do pay for things. Once we had an artist that we didn't even represent, but we hoped to represent him yeah. and he had a museum show coming up and we paid for the shipping because we were like, if he's in the show, like there were so many things that would go right for us and the money wasn't big enough. It wasn't an issue. I mean, yeah. of course we don't have endless funds, but the shipping fee in the comparison to how much money we could possibly make if we represented him. And if we could put this museum under our, you know, belt yeah. would be nothing, you know, compared to the ship, like the measly shipping fee, but to the artist, it's a huge deal. So yeah. 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 Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I don't know how we got into this. Sorry. I, no, I forgot. I, I mean, that's, the, that's sort of why I do these conversations. Uh, 
Yeah, because if I don't have a goal in mind, then it kind of lets the conversation go anywhere. Uh, yeah, so that's like my life, like I was saying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, just one thing kind of flowing. Yeah, parameters. Yeah. yeah, having some parameters, but but yeah, letting myself be open to, yeah. Um, yeah, so I guess, yeah, I just wanted to circle back to, yeah, you're working in galleries. You mentioned a whole bunch of really interesting things in the very beginning that I wanted to talk about. I think you talked briefly about... Mm-hmm. You could t- you could kind of go anywhere with this, but sort of like, what's it like to run a mid-tier gallery? And this idea of like, who's looking and the necessity of having a show. Since you talked about how your gallery is sort of thinking of becoming a pop-up, do you mean to say like, it actually doesn't matter that you're having free shows, but you're doing all your business sort of, I guess, talking directly to who the buyers are? Is that what you mm-hmm. mean? Kind of, yeah. I think because it's so thinned out or something because there's so much to see yeah people aren't being like let's and and the whole idea of like gallery hopping is totally almost dead too now you know so uh, with especially, the whole especially for the buyers right yeah so before whether you're a mid-tier or small tier if you're in the right neighborhood the coolest person might walk in the door and there's value and always being open and all of that and it's about being in in the zone of that. Um, yeah. But now it's like it's not doesn't seem really like that. People are much more goal oriented. Like, oh, I want to see this Yayoi Kusama at David yeah. Warner, so I'm gonna go and line up and go see that. Next door might be the coolest fucking show ever by some other kind of indie artist. Um, but you know. And he or she might be so rigorous and so interesting and might even be having a museum show next year somewhere. Yeah. But people are not really going to drift in as much. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Maybe that's a whole other thing about drifting in cities and walking. <laughs> yeah. Well, and also, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think Yayo Kasama is an interesting case because she's yeah. sort of now, she's at this intersection of so many different things. Yeah, but, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I think like, yeah, I mean, I think I've also heard like gallerists being like, oh yeah, we sold everything with through a PDF before the, mm-hmm. before the mm-hmm. art fair happened. And then so then sort mm-hmm. of like, yeah, kind of like you said, begs the question of the point of a show. But is mm-hmm. do you see that as a trend moving forward? Like gallerists sort of becoming yeah. more online? Yeah. And it's, it's similar to music, I think of like, musicians not making albums but releasing singles right Mm -hmm. so like making an album used to be like an art of creating crafting it what comes first what comes last what goes in the middle you know which songs and you know progression it was they thought of it as one work of art even though the the pieces in it were its own thing right Mm -hmm. so you know we talk about like something from the beach boys or the beatles or whatever and we're like oh that from that album and you know that right but lately Mm -hmm. it's not really as much like that maybe some rap kind of a little bit but so i think it's the same thing with with galleries when they were producing a show when they're curating it and they're working with a body of work and they're the artist had worked two years to create the show and you would plan it in two years in advance and then you would rotate your stable so then everyone has two years to make you know stuff like that would happen yeah but now it's not you know it's not really working out like that like people don't create shows anymore i mean they do but even artists are not thinking like, I want this. I'm thinking about a show that I'm going to have and this work will be in that show. I think, I mean, plenty of artists are still thinking like that, but a lot of um, artists who are part of galleries who are in the business of selling things and making money, not to say that the show people aren't thinking of that, but a lot of them are making one-offs. Like they're like, oh, this piece is really nice and it could sell and it could go into someone's living room or something like that. So they're not thinking about like building this narrative and whatever. Mm, and, and I think so for, um, a gallery, if you are not, you know, a blue chip gallery, then there's no incentive for you to really create a cohesive show because mm. you're just so desperate to sell things and make ends meet. So, you know, we used to do things like when we had a show, we would be like, okay, it's sold, but you can't take it until the show is over. 
But yeah. now I feel like things are not like that. It's like, oh, just take it. If that's going to make the difference in terms of like us selling it and because you want it now or something, I don't know, it works with your living room now, you're renovating your space, whatever. Yeah. Then I feel like gallery, a lot of gallerists now because of the economy and because of everything would be like, yeah, take it. <laughs> You know, really? so there's, there, I feel like there's like a trust or not a trust, but like something's a little bit broken, I guess. I guess yeah. that's how you can put it. So yeah. that every, like, I don't know who broke it first. Is it the artist? Is it the gallery? Is it the museum? Is it the buyers? But so now like there's no unspoken rule about these things anymore. So it's kind of like a jungle. And so I think more and more these like incentives or these like reasons to do things in certain ways is like kind of yeah not yeah not being honored or something at least in the gallery space and museums are still doing it you know nicely you know at least yeah as far as we could see right um but so then yeah so is it now for like a gallery like yours is it more more word of mouth than ever since like you're not having shows that critics can review yeah. How, 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 do, how do you get new clients? Yeah. So the, you know, the other thing about another thing I just remembered about like the system being broken or kind of like all out of whack or whatever is artists being very global now. So like even you, like you're traveling so much, you're living here and there. So, you know, the gallery system used to work really well when you knew that you're artist had a studio in the Soho loft or whatever, and was just going to be there forever, you know? So the re one of the reasons I remember that was like a turning point in our gallery, starting to consider other options was with an artist who was very, uh, global. And so was here working, there working. So then artists like that could pick up a gallery from whatever country they're there or sell something there. You know what I mean? So yeah. as a gallery, just like you can't an artist that, that and a sounds gallery like a nightmare, to, right? Yeah. It, they used to go hand in hand, but now it's like they kind of need to go hand in hand because not all artists know how to sell their own work, but at the same time, some artists do. So that's when things start to get weird because a gallery is trying to like, keep their space in one space. Whereas an artist is able to take their work anywhere they go and they can take themselves anywhere they could go. So then you, and you, you become like the stay at home mom or something, you know what I mean? It's like, uh, hello, like I'm here, I'm trying to do stuff for you. But then I totally get it. Like with those artists, it's like, well, but you haven't sold my work in like two years. So I'm going to go take things into my own hands or why, you know, creatively too like they don't want to be stuck in one place it's just like so that's not. that's also probably why the explosion of art fairs have happened exactly games, right? exactly yeah that was i feel like it's like buying time too for galleries to be in art fairs where it's a it's a way of telling their artists like see we're going places for you so then you we can still be your main agent kind of thing mm. you know what i mean so um yeah I think it's just, I don't know who changed it first, whatever, but all these things are happening. So it's just really hard to maintain a gallery that looks like a museum or runs things in a very structural way. You just kind of have to, just like an artist, right? Like you used to feel like an artist, maybe if you had a studio or if you put four hours a day or doing your work but then now it's like you kind of have to maybe your daily life doesn't even look like an artist right same thing with the gallery it's like we're all trying to like we're all trying to do it but (laughs) yeah no one knows what they're doing basically yeah no one does no one does Yeah. yeah so is your gallery mostly now transitioning to art fairs or no so we did the whole art fair thing we had like two years where we did like 10 art fairs a year we're trying to keep uh exhibition program in in in-house and curate like these fair things but and it worked out but towards the end we realized like oh my god we're just breaking even it just felt like more money or like more action just because you're busy and money is coming in in terms of sales not all the time but it does happen but you do the numbers at the end of the year and you realize it, it was just, it was just going in and out and it's exciting, but not in, 
you could have just stayed at the same place and nothing, you know, and you know, the unfortunate things about the unfortunate and fortunate thing about collecting in the day and age now is that, which I'd like to characterize it more as a fortunate thing because it, staying it's, positive. It, it's yeah, because it, it's, 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 it's looking kind of wonky now, but I think it's just like we're in a transition towards like more democracy, hopefully. Yeah. But, you know, what used to happen is that collectors were very educated people that were very privileged people. You know, they were patrons, right? So they understood mm-hmm. so much about art, maybe more than the artist in some way. You know, it's not like it's not like Joe Schmo who got rich off of like playing video games that decided that a painting was going to look cool in his loft or whatever, you know, is just buying shit art and putting it up. Right. So we need that too. We need that too. So that's what I'm saying. So the shift between like Joe Schmo being able to do that and participate in that, maybe some people will complain, okay, so we have all these uninformed buyers that's now promoting, that's making pockets of artists that are shit, really rich and those and you know it feels unfair right because there are people we know that should be doing well but they're not right Mm -hmm. and no and a lot of people are like yeah this person's really good but is really struggling or whatever there's always someone right and then there's always someone who's making you know replicas of mona lisa with like glitter and they're making lots of money so then yeah, we can complain about that but i don't want to because it's like okay then what's the alternative like go back to a place where, you know, certain class of people, you know, were able to do this. Yeah. So I, I feel like it's just, it's an awkward transition period right now and hopefully, you know, things will change. So I, yeah. it's, it's awful and it's like, you have to talk about it, but at the same time, like, I feel like it's like a release of something that used to not work either, you know, even though it seemed to. Yeah. So like, because going back to like the whole academia gallery thing. Yeah. Galleries are not academics, but they're still trying to archive in some way the Mm. career of whoever they're representing. Right. They're the ones they're trying to like build someone's career, build their CV, build their, build this person, not just their artworks, just one offs of their pieces, but they're trying to build this person as brand, right? It's like modeling agency, right? You have these models and you want that model, not just to book gigs, but this person to become like an icon. So, but I think those kinds of things are just like, in terms of mid tier, it's just like too much work, too much resources, and it's just not happening. And so Mm. I think that's where the incentives are kind of like, yeah, dying down or something. It's a big, yeah, it's a big question, right? I mean, I think yeah. that's what I've been hearing a lot is just sort of like the split, the split between the small and the big and how like that also means mid-tier artists have a harder time existing, right? Because there isn't that middle right. step. But Right, um, right, that's true. Yeah, <laughs> I guess it's like there's too many factors. We can talk about like what the artist goals are too because if you're talking about artists and artists being mid-tier not quite like in a famous position but you know the artists that we represent in our gallery a lot of their goals is not to be a museum their goal is just to keep making art yeah yeah. and to be able to do it and survive only on that maybe they're not telling me all their goals obviously but a lot of times you know if an artist's goal was for world you know, conquering museum (laughs) fame, they've left us, you know, because they realize Uh, we're not going to get them there. So, mm. so, um, yeah, that's unfortunate, but yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway. Um, is there anything else you want to talk about that I miss? I think we talked about a lot of different Um, things. No. All right. Any, any more things on your end? I don't know. I mean, I think we've, I've, I've been, I, I thought we had a really good conversation. Um, I don't, I don't, I I think this would be a good place to end. Yeah. But yeah. Great. Thanks so much for this conversation, Diana. No, thank you so much. So much fun always. All right. Well, have a good evening.
Thank you. Bye. Bye. Seeing Color is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Ziyuan Chung. Original music by Alex Chow. You can find more information on the website, www.seeingcolorpod.com, or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook under the handle Seeing Color Pod. If you enjoyed this show, please go to Apple Podcasts or iTunes and give Seeing Color a five star review. This really helps others discover the show and provides greater visibility for everyone on Seeing Color. Again, thank you so much for listening and goodbye for now.